All right, last week we took a look at lesson number one in my course on the basics of Lutheran teaching. Uh, took a look at knowledge, natural knowledge, creation, and the conscience. Finally, revealed knowledge in particular. Um, we spent quite a bit of time on the scriptures and how we interpret them, that they are God's word, they're inspired without error, um, and saw that uh, we use human reason to figure out what it says, but not as a master to judge it. And in particularly, we saw that to understand the scripture, we have to know the distinction between law and gospel, and we have to know that Jesus is the key, he's the center of all, uh, of everything, the key to the true understanding. Finally, uh, we took a look at the small catechism, the six chief parts, and once we kind of get done with some introductory stuff, we'll be digging into that quite deeply. But um, I still need to uh, provide just a little bit more in, in overview and, and such. So, with class number two, you've got your new sheets in front of you. You also have a pen when we get towards the end. I got another long gospel where we fill it in, but those are yours right on them as we, as we go through. Similar to last time, I kind of go like a freight train, barreling through the next thing. If you raise your hand, I will stop the train. We'll answer any questions or uh, uh, anything that you have. I'm trying my split screen again, so we'll see how it works. Okay, so top of that first page. Let's start with the commandments, and particularly we're just going to look at the first commandment today. Uh, what is the first of the Ten Commandments? You shall have no other gods before me. What does this mean? Uh, Luther writes the meaning, we should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. First thing we need to know is about this God. We know that there is a God. We know that he is powerful. Now the scripture is going to reveal to us who that God is. So what is this God? Well, this God that we are talking about, that we're going to worship, uh, is one of a kind. There is no other. Take a look. God is, answer, what is God? God is the Spirit. Uh, describe some of the attributes of God. He is eternal. He's omnipresent. He's omnipotent, omniscient, holy, just, faithful, benevolent, merciful, and gracious. Uh, some of these passages I'm going to buzz through kind of quickly, but you can see John 4:24. It tells us quite uh, explicitly that God is a spirit. That is, He is not a man. He is not. Um, uh, he is a. He's spirit. He's different from uh, from us. Uh, as it says, that they may worship Him, must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Psalm 90, 1 and two says, "The Lord." Thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or thou hast formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. Uh, our God has existed. He's eternal. Um, and so if you draw a line in both ways, one towards the future and one towards the past, he has always been. He has always existed and will always exist. For us, 
it would be a dot with a line going one way. There was a point at which we were conceived, uh, and before that, we did not exist. But we will go on uh, uh, in the future. But God is eternal, from everlasting to everlasting, going both ways. Psalm 102, thou art the same. We have a God who does not change. Uh, If God teaches us the way he is in the scriptures, we don't need to fear that there will be a change in God or that somehow he is different from the way he was in the past. We have a God who uh, is, uh, in theological terms, simple. He is uh, uh, the same. Jeremiah 23, am I a God of hands, saith the Lord, and not a God far off? Can anyone hide himself in secret places that I shall not see him, saith the Lord? Do not I fill heaven and earth, saith the Lord? We have a God who is omnipresent. Omni means all present. He is present everywhere. You can't go anywhere in heaven and earth. You will find him there. (laughs) The Lord says nobody can, can... play hide-and-seek with God and, and him not find him. He is omnipresent. Luke one thirty seven. with God nothing shall be impossible. He is omnipotent, potent as power. He is all-powerful. There's nothing that he cannot do. Psalm 139, 1-4, O Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know my sitting down, my rising up. You understand my thoughts afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down, are acquainted with all my ways. Check this out. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it all together. So even before it comes out, God knows what that word's going to be. We have a God who is omniscient, that is, all-knowing, is knowledge, and it's all of it. Um, and so this is the God that we have. He is uh, uh, immensely great. So our Isaiah 6, the prophet Isaiah tells us that he is holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Um, as we go forward, we'll also be talking about the true God. We'll talk about how uh, often those references are in a threefold or even in this one. Um, uh, the holy, holy, holy is not only letting us know this kind of degree of all, but his Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We'll get to that as, as well. Um, but we have a God who is without sin. We have a God who has never done wrong. Um, we have a God who is not even tempted by that. He is righteous. He is holy. Um, we'll be talking about those two terms and kind of going back. There's interchangeable uh, concerning God, and then we'll talk about ourselves. Psalm 33, 4, the word of the Lord is right. All his works are done in truth. So we have a God who is faithful. Um, When he gives us his word, uh, he will keep it. When he tells us something, it is truth. Uh, Faithful and and truthful. Daniel 9, 7, O Lord, righteousness, we've talked about being righteous, the holiness, belongeth unto thee. It says, but unto us confusion of faces. Um, That's an old King James way of uh, maybe you've heard two-faced or uh, what does that mean? Uh, Our Lord says when he presents himself to us, you see what he is. He is not hiding. He's not presenting to us one thing but in fact doing something else. He's not duplicitous uh, uh, at all. Uh, We have a God uh, who is not confused. When you see his face, you see him the way he is. Psalm 
Psalm 33. The word of the Lord is right. His works are done in truth. Um, He keeps it. Psalm 145. The Lord is good to all. His tender mercies are over all his works. We're going to talk about how we have a God who is good. Um, In fact, the word benevolent is one that the theologians use. Volent is the Latin for will. He is goodwill. He wants to, when we say good, he wishes to do good to all. Um, And so this is the kind of uh, uh, God, not good of himself, but good in, in giving out. Exodus 34, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin. As we describe him being merciful and gracious, uh, merciful, showing mercy uh, in himself, uh, he is gracious as he reaches out to us, he shows us mercy. That is, gives us what we don't deserve. How does he do this? Well, we're going to be talking about how his gracious and mercy comes to us through Jesus and what he has done for us. That's why he sent Jesus to us, that uh, uh, because he is gracious, and with that we received uh, mercy. God is love, um, not just is loving, but he is the category of love. He is what love is. If we're learning about being loving, well, we need to be like like God, uh, for he is the one who has done that. And finally, to return to our natural knowledge passage that we mentioned before, it says, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, that would be in unbelievers and the Gentiles. Why? Because God hath showed it unto them. So what has he showed us? He showed us the invisible things of him. Ah, from the creation of the world are clearly seen. So, we've got a creation, we've got a world. You see, though, we talked about the stars, we talked about the mountains, you see all this, and you see about the cycle of life, you study, you know, with a, tele, uh, with a well, you can look at a telescope, I was thinking of a microscope, and you look at how it all fits together, and what do we say? It doesn't, we look at this and say, someone had to make this, but God's not a part of creation. We say he must be spirit. He must be the invisible things. He's different from this creation. He's not a part of it. He's the creator. But that can be seen from the creation. Being understood by these things that are made, that even his eternal power and godhood, uh, he's going to have to be eternal if, if this creation thing is going to work. And, and that's what we see, so that men are without excuse. So we know there. Uh, that's what God is, uh, the one true God. That's what he is. And these are all of kind of these attributes uh, that we learn ab- about him. But we still need to identify him. And again, he does teach us who he is. Who is the true God? Who is he? The triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we describe them as three distinct persons in one divine essence. So in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, an Old Testament passage, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Um, He is one. 
the Old Testament people had a problem. They were always running after other gods. And he wanted to let them know that he was the one God. There's only one God. Oh, that is the Lord our God. And yet, it's also revealed to us in the scriptures, Matthew 28, 19, Jesus says, Go ye therefore, teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Or Holy Spirit, that's interchangeable uh, um, uh, concerning. We describe this God as the triune God. We actually had to make up the word. It's not in the scriptures itself. The word tri means three, and the word you means one. So we describe him as the three-one God. Um, again, if I could give you an example, then he would be like something else, and he wouldn't be the only God or the only one. Um, but he is the only. And so there are some imperfect examples which, which we have tried to use. I've heard you know people uh, say, well... Uh, you want to understand about the triune God? Well, H2O, it can have the form of water. It can have the form of a solid ice. It can also be a, a vapor. And, and so, see, it's all water, and yet there are three. You go, yeah, it just doesn't quite work. In fact, there were some people that decided that God was modal. What did what they mean by that? Well, they said there was one God. He just took different modes. At one point, he was the Father in the Old Testament, and then he became Jesus in the New, and then he became the Holy Spirit, and he was different modes, maybe like the H2O kind of thing, it's all. And, and, and we go, no, that's not it either. Um, because the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit existed even in creation. Oh, I don't have the passage here. I'll find it in another one. We talk about creation. Uh, they were all there. Um, so you can't say, you know, that he kind of changed maybe... Uh, someone might say, well, I am a husband to my wife, and I am a father to my kids, and I am a pastor to my church. Yeah, but that doesn't, that's not three different persons. Uh, some have pulled up the shamrock, tried to tell us that St. Patrick taught the Trinity by the three, you know, and, and uh, they say, well, you know, there's one shamrock, but there are uh, three parts. And I go, yeah, the three parts, kind of like if that part isn't there, then it's not whole. But Jesus is fully God, and the Holy Spirit is fully God, and the Father is fully God, and yet there are not three gods, there's only one. It's not that Jesus just represents God. Um, there are some today that even say, well, the Holy Spirit, he's just the spokesman. He just speaks for, well, no. Um, we have used, often, uh, at least to try to illustrate, you know, three circles in which each one is eternal. Um, and yet that's probably not perfect. I, I've seen a diagram where you have God is the Son, God is the Holy Spirit, and God is the Father, but the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Holy Spirit. And you, you kind of go, well, it gets, you know, close. Um, what do we have? Well, we have passages, you know, that describe... Um, you know, here I took Matthew 3. Uh, and Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water. And lo, the heavens were opened unto him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So, again, if, if we're talking just about me being a husband and a father and a pastor, well, yeah, but that's just a different time. Here we see... Jesus standing in the water, 
we see the Holy Spirit descending in the form of a dove, and at the same point we have a voice from heaven as it is open. All three persons, you know, this this is not just one and the same. There are three persons, and even of themselves, they are all fully God. So we usually describe this as the Trinity and Unity and the Unity and Trinity. Well, if I can give you an example, well, I guess I can't. So what if I can't give you an example? Well, that simply means that God is greater than I am. Uh, guess what? We have a God that's greater than, than you or I, and, and that's good. There are other ways in which, Second Corinthians 3, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Or at the end of our services, we have the Aaronic benediction. Now, in the Old Testament, uh, they did believe, they didn't have the word Trinity, but they surely did believe uh, that there was uh, a Holy Spirit, that there was a Father, that someone who was to come and be the Messiah was going to be the Son of God. It's taught. In fact, it's not until after Jesus came that Judaism rejected those kind of things. Um, the Lord bless thee and keep thee. Two, the Lord make his face shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. And the Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. There are references. We do have to acknowledge, though, that in the Old Testament, these references to the Trinity uh, as the scriptures say, are in shadows. It's not until the reality of Christ coming that we get kind of a clear picture uh, concerning those things. What do we know about these three persons, though? We can distinguish them from each other because the scriptures do. We know that the Father has begotten the Son, but it's from eternity. <laughs> I, I don't you know. When I begot a child, we got a birth date. We've got those. Uh, this begotten, the Son comes from the Father and yet from eternity. Um, how, when, you know, there's not a point at which Jesus was not the Son of God. Hmm. The Holy Spirit from eternity proceeds from the Father and from the Son. And so we know that he has done that. Um, in the scriptures and in our catechism as well, as we have three articles to the creed, we do ascribe certain works to one person or another, but it's not exclusively of them. We do say the Father especially is the one who did the work of creation, the Son the work of redemption, the Holy Spirit the work of sanctification, making us holy. Um, to give you a real good example, you know, we do have Psalm 2, Thou art my Son, this day I have begotten thee. Uh, um, the Father telling us that he begot the Son, but I think it's the next passage that is uh, quite telling. Uh, Jesus teaches in John 15, 26. When the Comforter has come, referring to the Holy Spirit, whom I will send to you from the Father, though the Father is listed, even the Spirit of Truth, referring to the Holy Spirit, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. Well, when Jesus speaks in this way, he sure speaks of the Holy Spirit as being something other than him, and the Father as being something other than him. And yet, when he describes these, we find that all of these are God himself, and they describe them as one. It is a mystery, but that is uh, what God has revealed to us. The next one, what is it to believe in God? What is it? 
It includes, and I put three things, it's called knowledge, assent, and a reliance of the heart. Sometimes we call it confidence. Confidence, this confidence or trust, is not merely that there is a God that exists. No. It's not in the entire scriptures themselves, although we trust what the scriptures teach us. This object of saving faith is none other than the gospel, and that is that God forgives us because of Christ's substitutionary and atoning work for us. So what do we have? Well, as I say, there has to be, uh, uh, if we're talking about believing in God, and again, the words believe, faith, trust, they're all synonymous, they're all the same thing uh, when the scriptures teach. First of all, there have to be facts. So intellectual knowledge or facts. Romans 10.14 says, How shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? So you're going to have to hear. You're going to have to hear the facts. You're going to have to hear that there was a father who created the world and he sent his son and that Jesus suffered. You're going to have to hear these facts uh, that come. And so as it talks about here, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So we're going to go to the word of God. It's going to present to us facts. That's, That's first of all. Um, next thing, assent. Assent means you say yes to these facts. John 5:46. Jesus is talking to them. He said, For had ye believed in Moses, if you had trusted in him, if you had assented to his facts, you would have believed me. For he wrote of me. Moses taught about me. If you believed what he said, trusted, said yes to those facts, you would also have to say yes to the facts that I exist, because he taught about me. We have this passage in James 2.19 that seems to be a, uh, a reference to kind of the knowledge and assent, but without the confidence or trust. James 2.19 says, Thou believest that there is one God, Thou doest well. Yep, you're right. The devils also believe and tremble. Mm. This reference to the devils believing, it's not the confidence or trust that saves them. Not at all. What is it saying? The devils know there is one God. They've been taught that. And they know it's true. They assent to those facts. But that's not enough to save the devils are saved. You know, maybe you've heard people say, oh yeah, I, I believe there is a God. Well, just that, that it exists, that there's facts. Do you say, yeah, yeah, I guess there is one. Yeah, but what do you believe? There needs to be, this, we do need facts, and we got to know that it is true, but there needs to be a trust in those facts. That is a trust that Christ is the Savior I trust in it. So, John 3.36. He that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Without trust in the Son, holding on to him a, a confidence, um, a belief. Well, what do I mean about that? Um, well, I'll give you an example. So, um, I might hold up for you and say, hey, I've got a life preserver. Um, this is a life preserver. And you look at that and kind of go, okay, that's a fact. Yep, that's a life preserver. And then I say to you, well, this life preserver, um, it floats and it holds people up in the water. That's why we, we put it on. 
and you say, yes, I, you're right. That's the life preserver, and yes, it supports people in the water. I got it. But it's not until you are drowning, and I throw you the life preserver, and you quit struggling, and you put your weight upon it, that you trust that these facts are true for you, not just for everybody else. Um, or that it's somehow true, but it doesn't... No, there's a, tr a confidence. The fide in, in Latin is faith. This is faith with, with me. And so, down here, what do we have? John, uh, the next passage, Hebrews 11.1. 1. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And so, if faith relies upon things, we know what is to come. We say, I've got a hope. Why? Because I know. I'm putting a trust in what God has done. I know that he has saved me, therefore I have a hope of eternal life. All things not seen. Second Timothy 1. I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep which I have commanded unto him against that day. Uh, to believe says, I'm persuaded it is true for me. Now that trust, that confidence, that faith, that belief that includes knowledge, assent, and then this, it's true for me, you have to trust in something. Um, I've heard, you know, there's, there, there's songs, you know, well, just believe, just believe, just believe. I go, believe in what? you got to have a faith in something. So this is kind of a diagram I, I put together. I have a God, and this triune God uh, reveals to us through his word. What does he reveal to us? He reveals to us Jesus Christ and what he has done. That is the object of the faith. And so when we talk about this, God gives to us a promise. He gives us, Jesus died for you. He gives you facts. He tells you what he has done, uh, asking you to assent to the facts. And then he says, the promise is, it is for you. When faith, belief, trust, grabs onto that fact, it is confidence when we say, Jesus died for me. It takes it to myself. I'm trusting, I'm holding on to that. The content of the faith is what God has told us. He's always giving us his word. He's giving us promises saying, trust in me concerning this. Um, now, as we go forward, we're going to talk about this faith. This faith also is a gift of God. It's not something I have to do. I have to run out. But it's because he gives it out. Um, the example, and I'll, I'll use it again, um, it is when the uh, uh, beggar is beside the road, and, uh, and he's there, and I take my Big Mac sandwich, and I offer it to him. It is God holding out, me holding out, here you go, it's for you. It's not until the beggar grabs hold of it does he have the gift. Does he have the Big Mac? Similarly, when God gives us his promise, when faith receives the gift, he who believes has eternal life. He who does not trust in Christ does not have it. And so we spend a lot of time in the scriptures presenting to us the content so that it might create the hand of faith that reaches out and grabs onto it. So John says in John 1.29, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You don't go, 
Oh yeah, yeah, he takes away sin. You say no, I, I want him because I need what he is getting away sin. I'm in the world. Yeah, I want that. First um, Timothy two. There is one God, one mediator between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all to be testified in due time. If you want to be reconciled with God, you want one mediator, it's got to be Jesus. Grab along, grab a hold of him, that's trust. Second Corinthians 5, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We're going to find out that the Ten Commandments show us our sin, we can't do it, but Jesus is without sin. Grab along to him. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brothers, that he might be a faith, merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make the propitiation for the sins of the world. He's our substitute. He made the purchase price. Uh, so we're going to see that God is doing what? He is providing for us this faith and trust by giving us the promise, saying, I've got something for you to trust or to believe in. So that is uh, what God is, spirit and all of those attributes. We know he is the triune God, uh, three persons and one. Um, belief includes that. When we go back to the first commandment, um, with every commandment, there are two parts. The first commandment, you shall have no other gods. Within each commandment, there is something which is forbidden, and there is something which is enjoined or required. Sometimes the commandments presented this way. The first commandment says, you shall have no other gods. It's telling us what not to do. But it implies, the other side of the coin is none other than, well, if you're supposed to have no other gods... What you're really supposed to do is have only the one true God, the triune God. Those are two of the same things. If the second commandment says, you shall not misuse the name, what's required? That we use it rightly. Third commandment does it the other way. The third commandment says, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Well, what would be forgiven? To not keep the day holy. So everything involves a... a, a what's forbidden and what's required. Um, so, uh, uh, let's look at the first commandment. You shall have no other gods. What is forbidden in the first commandment? Well, what is for, forbidden is all idolatry. And sometimes, as we just talk about this, we describe something as gross idolatry or fine idolatry. All, right. all manner of idolatry. Whether it be actually to regard and adore a creature as God or to fear love or trust in creatures as we should fear love and trust in God alone. So there really is only two things. I mean, either you can trust in the creator or you can trust in the creation. <laughs> There's nothing else. Everything that's, that, uh, that is is either one of those two things. When we trust in a creature as God, we have misplaced, we're trusting in something that can't save. We're trusting in something that's not God at all. Isaiah 42, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. Um, you create something and say that is God, you know, it is not God. Um, it is just an image of something that's in creation. 
Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Psalm 115, but our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatever, whatsoever he pleased. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. What we find is that uh, normally we end up worshiping something that someone has made. That's gross idolatry. But, um, you know, uh, it, it, except for Buddhists and, and as such, uh, most of the world has at least moved beyond uh, the gross creature idolatry, though they may make up another god uh, in, in place of the triune god. We do speak of what we would call fine idolatry. Matthew 10, He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And so we can take something which God has given, which is good. We can take a spouse or a child or a mother or a father, and then uh, we can trust them as if they were God. Well, I don't worship my, my mother. Well, no, you may not. Um, but if God says to you, uh, you shall not lie, uh, you're to speak truthfully. Uh, if someone calls on the phone and you go, hey, mom, someone's on the phone, tell them I'm not here. Okay, so who do you love? Are you going to love your mother and lie? Or God who said, do not lie? Oh, all of a sudden we realize that this fine idolatry, which do we love more or which do we fear? Do I fear displeasing God or do I fear displeasing my mother? Uh, um, yeah, that can put something in the place of God. And so it says in Proverbs 3, 5, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, lean not on thine own understanding. We usually have ways in which we can get around uh, things, you know, well, yeah, I know God said don't lie, but my own understanding says there would be a certain place in which it would probably be okay. And, and you know, if it uh, were said... Yeah, that's exactly what we're talking about. We're talking about having a idolatry in which we trust our own understanding. We make our own understanding better than what God has told us. Jeremiah 17, Cursed be the man that trusteth in man, who maketh his maketh flesh his arm, that would be his strength, and whose heart departeth from the Lord. And so uh, uh, those who trust in themselves and what they can provide and do. You know, God can't take care of me. I want to pull myself up uh, by my own bootstraps. It describes other things. And, and again, any kind of departing from the commandments is already uh, uh, it describes it as idolater. Uh, For this ye know that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater. Uh, so often people will give up the, the words of their God uh, because of their, as it says here, their own belly. Uh, Philippians 3.19 Whose God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. They love earthly things more than that. Sure, I'd serve God, but if it means that I have to lose something, uh, I'll hold on to the stuff of this world. Love the stuff of this world. Psalm 14, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Uh, to deny God is, is to, that's forbidden in the first commandment. Um, uh, so atheism. John 5, 23, uh, speaking of modern day Judaism. Now, in the Old Testament, they believed in the same God that we do. 
But since the coming of Christ, to deny him is to deny the Son. And yet they say, well, yeah, but we both have the same God. We both have the Father. But that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said in 5.23, All men should honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son honoreth not the Father, which hath sent him. So when there are those that would deny the Son but claim to have the same God, we go, well, no, you've actually changed. Because the... Those that honor the Son honor the Father. The Father sent His Son. So these are the things that are forbidden. What are the things that are required then? Luther, in his explanation, says that we should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. That trust is what we've been talking about with belief, faith, belief, trust, uh, holding on to His promises. Uh, trusting in him, not ourselves, for our salvation, and that he would provide and take care of us. But, if we have a God that is that way, there needs to be both fear and love. But I fear to displease him. Uh, if you love your father, and, and he tells you to do something, you don't want to make him unhappy. Um, I don't want him uh, to be angry. And so... I am the Lord, I am the Almighty God, walk before me, and be thou perfect. Follow my words, and, and walk before me. Uh, Psalm 33, let all the earth fear the Lord, let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Genesis 39 describes my great love for God, where it says, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? No, I love my God too much. We should fear, love, and trust in him more than anything. It is better, the last passage, Psalm 118, 8, to trust in God than to put confidence in man. So what do we know about this one true God that we are not to uh, give his glory to others and that we should fear, love, and trust? Well, one of the things we know about him... Oh, question. So some of those talk about what we shall and shall not do. Some talk about how we do do this, and some talk about how we can't. So we are, in some instances, we love God, and in others we don't. Is it a? We know we can't keep it perfectly, but is there? How how do we keep it partially? <laughs> <laughs> um. Good. I've led you along. I think in the next page it will explain that. Okay. I, that's oh, a good okay. Because I think you adequately said what's going on. Well, it tells us to do it. And it, in some instances it gives examples where David actually, or, or, you know, this is Joseph. He was being tempted to commit adultery by Potiphar's wife. And he said, no, I can't do that. You know, so there are in some instances that we actually do fear, love, and trust in God. Are there instances where we fail? Yes. Well, so how does this work? And, and how important is that? Let's get to it. Um, I think it's the next page. So, And if I haven't gotten to it, remind me again. All right, six natural days. What happens? This triune God in six natural days created all things out of nothing by his word. Um, each one of these points is important. The first point is in six natural days. In other words, we don't believe in evolution. We believe that God, in six, nor almost like 24-hour days, God created everything that exists. Uh, the triune God did. 
How did he do it? He created it not with something, but out of nothing. Um, hmm. That's not normal the way we do it. Um, uh, I'm going to make you some chocolate chip cookies. Great. What do you do? I get the flour. I get the chocolate chips. I get the thing. I put it and then I make it. God says, I'm going to create the world. He gets nothing. <laughs> he makes it out of nothing. And he does it simply by speaking his word. In the beginning, and there was nothing before this, just God. But in that beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth, as he starts off, he makes an earth that is without form and void, kind of a mass of chemicals, if you will. Darkness was over the face of the deep, this kind of watery substance. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Here we see the Holy Spirit. We have the Father hovering over the face of the waters. And then God says, let there be light. And there was light. God does it by his word. Um, that would be like me saying, let there be chocolate chip cookies. You know, I, I can't do this. But, but, but God is the one who, who does it. And that's the way he created. His word, as we talk about studying his word, if we have a God who by his word can do that, well, that word is, is powerful even as the God whose word it is. In John, in the New Testament, it lets us know that in the beginning, in that beginning place where the Father and the Spirit were, there was the Word, and this time the capital W lets us know, as we find out later in John 1.14, that it's Jesus. Jesus is there at the beginning. The Word, Jesus, was with God, and this Jesus, the Word, was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Jesus, and without him nothing was made that was made. So we have the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit there at the beginning, and through the word Jesus, God creates everything in six natural days, out of nothing, by his word. As it says here, by faith we understand the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. God called them forth and made them when he made this world, what is the foremost among the visible creatures that God has made? Man. Because God himself has prepared his body, has given him a rational soul, and above all, has made him in his image. What do we find? If we would go through, and I would love to take the time, I can't do it this time, but... If you go through Genesis 1 and 2, what you will find is that God creates everything, and when he finally gets everything ready, he puts his prized creation, the greatest thing of all, which is man. The Lord God made everything else by just speaking the word, but, but when he makes man, he gets his hands dirty. The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. He breathed into his nostrils, and man became a living soul, uh, that which lives forever. Uh, we find out in 127, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. In fact, both male and female, Adam and Eve, are both made in God's image. What we need to know is that everything that was made is for us. It shows us God's goodness, his love for us, um, what he wanted for us. In fact, we're going to go on to talk about the being made in God's image, both man and woman. 
And it says, they were made in God's image. For what purpose? To enjoy a perfect communion with God. He wants to be with us. And he made a place for us, um, a garden to live in. Question? But he made everything out of just his word except for us. And with us, he actually uses something, the dust, and he gets up and breathes in our nostrils. He forms whatever. Everything else he just says. You kind of go, wow. I mean, we must be pretty important. God, yeah, he does us different. And he gives us something different. We've got an eternal soul. Other things don't. Um, and they don't get the image of God. What is the image of God? In blissful knowledge of God and in perfect righteousness and holiness. So what do we find? Uh, Genesis 131. Then God saw everything had made, and indeed it was very good. We're talking good, we're talking perfect. Not just good, but very good. It is perfect. Man is perfect. He's got a perfect image of God. And later on, they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. What does this mean? It means that God made them the way he intended them to be, and they were comfortable being who they were. This is who I am. And I'm proud of what God has made and done. And God is proud. And he interacts with them, uh, talks with them. Uh, take a look at Genesis 2, 16, 17. The Lord God talks with them. He commanded the man, saying, I've ever cheated the garden, but if you leave, or if you leave, or if you good and evil, you shall not eat, from the day you eat of you will surely die. He talks with them. He tells them what to do. This is a communion with God. This is like they're, they're living together. And then, later on, we find out that they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden of the cool of the day. It sounds like a, a, a normal day. Uh, God walks by. Um... There's the one kind of goofy Christian song, but you know, God walks with me and he talks with me. Um, That's what was going on in the Garden of Eden. Um, God loved them and they loved God. But, 118, as I put here, question, do we still bear the image of God? The sad fact is this, no, it was lost. It was lost in the fall of man. And Genesis 3 is that story of man's fall. I put that in your devotions for this coming week. Um, Genesis 3, 8 through 10, Adam and his wife hid themselves after they had fallen from sin. After they had sinned, it affected them so much so that, watch, uh, uh, when God comes walking uh, uh, in the garden, they hid themselves. What? God created them. You you think God doesn't know where they are? I mean, I mean... Because of their sin, they became rather stupid. Um, And they're hiding among the trees. The Lord God called Adam and said, where are you? Not that God didn't know where they were. He wanted to hear Adam confess his sins. Um, So he said, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid. The next thing is, because I was naked. Before sin, that wasn't a problem. Now, They're ashamed of God's creation, though his creation is good. They're hiding themselves as if God didn't know what they look like, or God didn't care, uh, uh, or God... We find that when we get to Genesis 5-3, and Adam has a child, he begat a son, and we find that it's no longer in God's image. It's in Adam's own image, after his image, called his name Seth. 
what does this mean? We have a, we don't have the image of God. We've got a sinful nature. And I'm going to get to that in just a little bit, which will answer your question. Uh, concerning the sinful nature uh, that we have, we pass it on. Adam's a sinner. Eve is a sinner. Uh, they give that likeness of sinfulness being without the divine image. They are no longer righteous and holy. Um, they pass that on. So we've lost the image of God. Uh, we do find that in believers in Jesus, a beginning is made. It's not perfect, but a beginning is made concerning this renewing the divine image in us. Uh, it will only fully be restored in eternal life. There we'll have perfect communion God. There we will talk with them. There we will be happy. But not quite till then. Um, Ephesians 4, 22 and 24 uh, says that as believers you ought to put off concerning your former conduct, the old man. That's a way of talking about our sinful nature. The old man, all of us have it. Uh, that sinful nature which grows corrupt according to deceitful lusts, and we are to be renewed in the spirit of our mind that you put on the new man. Uh, that would be the renewal of the divine image which was created according to God. And how was it? True righteousness and holiness. We'll describe how that happens in a bit. But to let you know, we've lost it and we, we need to receive it again. Uh, it comes through forgiveness in his word. Psalm 17 describes it in the future. I will behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. Um, after I have died and I've come back to life, I'm going to have a righteousness in which I can stand before you without fear. Um, I can have that communion again like I had in the Garden of Eden. Ninety-two, what is sin? Sin is every departure from the rule of the divine law. So the Ten Commandments tell us something when we don't do it, what they forbid, or when we don't do what they tell us to do, or we do what they tell us not to do. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness against the law, unlaw, and sin is lawlessness. So it's every departure from the law uh, of God. How did we get sin? Well, it was brought into the world, and we speak about it in two ways. One, it came by the devil who first departed from God. He was originally a holy angel, departed from God and uh, refused. And he brought this by temptation upon us. And uh, by man, that is by Adam himself, who of his own free will suffered himself to be misled into sin. And so, uh, that twofold source of evil, 1 John 3, he that committed sin is of the devil, the devil sinned from the beginning. And then there is also Romans 5.12, where from Adam, by one man, sin entered the world, and, well, death by sin. So what do we find? Well, Adam, who sinned, he's not the only one, Adam and Eve sinned, they're not the only one that died. We died, too, because we inherited that sin. So we need to take a look at the two kinds of sin as the scriptures speak of them. First of all, we have what is called original sin. Um, that doesn't mean you're being very creative. Uh, wow, that's the first time ever anyone ever sinned that way. That would be really... No, it's the created original sin as in the sin of origin, that sin which is Adam. It is that sin which we have inherited from Adam. And what is that? The total depravity of our whole human nature which is now depraved of its concreated righteousness. We don't have it. 
it's inclined towards all that is evil, and it's because of what it is, God is angry, and it's Jude, damnation is to be paid because of that sin. That's what we have. Uh, Psalm 51 says, Behold, I was shapen or created in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Um, it's not saying that the sinful act is, is somehow a, a sin itself, or, but that also was created by God. It's saying that already when I was conceived in the womb, already when that, I was already a sinner. I, I, I had a sinful nature right from there. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. So sinful gets sinful. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. If the Holy Spirit creates it, it is without sin. It is spiritual. Paul says, I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. Hmm. The flesh, the sinful nature, what does it do? The sinful nature is always in reaching out, inclined to evil. Genesis 8.21, after God uh, saved Noah and his family, you might thought, oh, well, he finally got rid of all the evil. We won't have a problem. And yet God lets us know that the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. It's, it's always that way. Um, all it takes is a, uh, a school teacher or a mother, and, and you say, all right, so tell me about your children. Uh, do you teach them to do good or to do bad? Of course I teach my child to do good. I teach them, and I go, so why do you do that? Well, they already know how to do bad. Right? That's exactly, that's the way they start out. You don't have to teach them the bad things. They can do that all by themselves. Um, but to teach them to, to do good, to speak truthfully, to write, that's difficult. Um, what's actual sin? Well, the second kind of sin is actual sin. These are every transgression. It includes desires, thoughts, words, and deeds. They all come from the sinful nature. If we didn't have a sinful nature, we wouldn't be doing these actual sins. These actual sins come from a corruption of our heart that is inclined towards evil. Matthew 15, 19 says, Out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, that's where it comes from. James 4 says, Therefore to him that knoweth to do good, and doeth it not, to him it is sin. What do we find? Well, there are times that we actually know, yeah, that's wrong. I know what I shouldn't do, but I do it anyway, for my original sin uh, 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 teaches me those things. So there are two kinds of sin, original sin, actual sin. It's from this original sin that all comes. What do we find? We find that this, uh, the Ten Commandments, uh, two tables of the law, the Ten Commandments, not only do they expose actual sin, shows us our sins, that's the last, but the Ten Commandments also show us our original sin. That is, these are the things we do, or not do. This is who we are, who we are to be or not be, and it shows us that. The next section says this, The Ten Commandments are the holy will of God or the law, wherein God tells us how we are to be holy and righteous, and what we are to do or not do. What do we find? Well, 
In some places, it does things like this. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. So, sometimes, the Ten Commandments tell us you're to be holy. It points to our sinful nature, which we're not. And it shows us that we're not holy. Um, uh, you're supposed to be, but, but we're not. God's holy, and I'm not like him. Uh, other times, it reveals to us our thoughts, desires, words, and deeds. He has showed thee, O man, what is good, what doth the Lord require of thee, to do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with our God. says, these are the things, yeah, they come up. And we don't do what we should because of that sinful nature. We talked earlier how the, in the creation of man, God wrote the law in man's heart. Afterward, he laid it down at Ten Commandments, written on two tablets, published it through Moses. Um, so, first it was written on the heart. It's still there, but due to our original sin, our sinful nature, um, you might say it's been smudged over the years. It's not as clear as it could be. Genesis, uh, Galatians 3.19 goes on to tell us, so then what's the purpose of the law? Um, you know, what, why do we need, what, what about this law? If we've got a sinful nature and we do sinful things, and that's the way we are, well, why did God give us the Ten Commandments? I know there are those that say, well, the Ten Commandments are given so you can keep them and be saved. And we go, you know, the scripture doesn't say that at all, ever. What's the purpose? It said that the Ten Commandments or the law was added because of transgressions because of the sinfulness of man, because things were getting worse. It says, and it was added because of those transgressions. Why? Till the seed, capital S, it's referring to Jesus, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it, the law, was appointed through angels by the hand of a meteor. So Moses brought us the Ten Commandments. Why? Because Jesus hadn't come yet. And we needed to be prepared for him. We needed to be held under the law so that we would look forward to the seed who is Jesus. The Ten Commandments are divided up into two tables. Let's see, I think I got those. Um, I'd have to open that up a little bit more. Yeah. Um, the Ten Commandments uh, which were really written on the heart, later were given in two tables. Let's see how my time is going. Oh! I am going too slow. Um, I'm going to push forward. I got the first table, first, second, and third commandment. I got the second table, the fourth through the ten. Uh, the first table of the law deals with love of God, how we are to act towards God. The first commandment is having no other gods, of course. When we get, for example, to the fifth about murder and not murdering, the second table deals with love towards the neighbor. In all of these things, if we could love God the way we should, if we could love the neighbor the way we could, we could keep the law. Love is the fulfillment of the law. And so... Um, as it says right here, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law, Romans 13.10. Question 90. Eric, to get back to your question, can we keep God's commandments as he would have us keep them? So he's given them to us. Can we keep them? The answer is no. 
since the fall, natural man cannot keep the law of God at all. That is, by his sinful nature, he's completely unable to do anything of pleasing to God. But we have to know that even those who are regenerate, that is, those who are believe in Jesus, are born again, they keep it, but imperfectly, not completely, a little bit sometimes. Um, it's not perfect. Uh, Psalm 14 says, They are all going to die. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Uh, by themselves, as we talked about uh, Psalm 14 with the unbelievers. Uh, Ecclesiastes tells us, There is not a just man upon earth that doeth good and not sin. Um, these, this is what the scriptures continue to tell us, that no, you can't keep the commandments. But I didn't give you the commandments so that you would keep them. I gave you the commandments so that you would know you couldn't keep them and you would look for something else to save you. Coming on down, James 2.10, uh, on top of page 6, whoever shall keep the whole law yet offend at one point, he is guilty of all. God demands perfection and, and we are not able to keep those uh, commandments. The only one that is able to keep the commandments is none other than Jesus. And so, what do we find? Moving on to question that one that says 91, what purpose does the law then serve? Um, oh, I think I jumped too far. Did I jump too far? What purposes then did the law serve? Well, there's three uses for the law. One is a curb. It serves as a curb, like the car going down the street. If it gets off to the side, it kind of bumps it back to the middle. Uh, this curb is used for outward discipline. It is used for unbelievers. And so God, by writing this law in the heart, it keeps us somewhat within certain bounds. Not perfectly, not, but uh, um, lest there be, you know, we don't have any particular societies that come along and say, no, we think adultery is good and murder is good and killing, you know. Nobody does that. Why? Because there is a curb of the law, um, and thus uh, the law teaches that. Second use of the law is a mirror. It shows our sins. It shows us exactly the way we are. That's what the law does. Third, the use as three, it is a rule or a guide. Once you have become a believer, and you're saved, because Jesus did it, You'd say, well, how do I please God? And God says, well, not this way, but this way. And it gives us a guide or a rule to show our thankfulness uh, for what God has done for us. Uh, and so, wherewithin shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed, therefore, according to your word. And so we uh, uh, ask God, what would, what would you like? We don't make up our own ideas of what we think would be pleasing to God. Um, in the Middle Ages, you know, they thought that they'd crawled on their knees to the temple, that would please God. Well, God never said that. Let's see what God really wants. Uh, and so he will teach us. However, the phrase, Latin phrase, lex semper accusat, the law always accuses. Even though there are three different uses, you might say the mirror is the one that shows our sins, even these will end up accusing us. Even when we try to please God by doing things, we will ultimately fail and find that it, it shows our sins. And so, uh, through the knowledge of our sin, the law prepares us and leads us to receive Christ and the gospel. That's its purpose. Ultimately, 
uh, Galatians 3, 23-24, but before faith came, we were kept under the guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterwards be revealed. So what was it? The law was our tutor. We kept thinking, I can earn this, I can do this. And God said, let me give you the commandments to show you you can't. And it kept teaching us and teaching us, and it was to be our tutor so that finally... When the gospel came, it would bring us to Christ that we might be justified, declared righteous by faith. And after faith has come, well, we're no longer under a tutor. Uh, we've been set free from our from our sins. And so God is, is using this law to, to teach us. 97. How may we then be free from sin, righteousness, and heirs of salvation? Well, it doesn't come by works of the law. It's only through faith in Christ that we're set free from that. So, Romans 10.4 says, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believes. Acts 16.31, so they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, you will be saved, you and your household. Uh, Romans 3 that I have down here goes through and kind of uh, reiterates and gives Paul kind of teaching uh, since I've kind of run out of overtime with that, I think I'm going to leave that for uh, another time. Uh, I've taught the basics of that. That would just illustrate it uh, one more time or again. So, turn over to the next page. Page 7 has the proper distinction between law and gospel. Oh, I'm supposed to have a... Let's see. Um, nope, that's the wrong one. Oops. I closed what I shouldn't have closed. Let's see if I can find it real quick. I think that was it. There we go. All right. Okay. We're back to our side-by-side. -side. Law and gospel. Let's fill in the blanks. Uh, we need to know the proper distinction of law and gospel. The Ten Commandments are... Law. law. Uh, next one. The promise of forgiveness in Jesus is gospel or good news. So fill in the word gospel. We talked about the law, which is the Ten Commandments showing us our sin. However, let's push it forward just a little bit. You might be surprised to know that the law promises life. It says, If you shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. The law 
tells us to do things, and it says, if you keep it, you will have eternal life. Matthew 19, 17, Jesus said to a man, rich young ruler, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. He too gave the law, saying that if you can keep them perfectly, you can have eternal life. In that sense, they are quite similar to the gospel. The gospel also promises life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It says, if you believe, trust in him, you'll have life. Both the law and the gospel promise life. But it's not because there are two ways to heaven. In fact, what we will find that the law promises life and it has conditions. It doesn't just give you life. It says there's always something you have to do. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. When up here it says you can have life if you do what? Keep the commandments. Perfectly. In fact, whoever stumbles shall keep, whoever shall keep the whole law and stumble in one point, nope, he's guilty of it all. Um, the problem is not that the Ten Commandments don't promise life. The problem is, is that the conditions we can't keep. That's the problem. The problem is, I mentioned, I think, you know, last week, Eric, if you jump over the church, I'll give you a million bucks. It's not that it's not a good promise. The problem is, is that you can't do it. The law has conditions. What do we find with the gospel? The gospel has no conditions. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. It's giving it out. For grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Do you have to do anything? No. Just trust in what he has given. I, I'm, it's Go back to my life preserver. I throw it out to you in the water, and you don't say, okay, what do I have to do? You, <laughs> you grab onto it. It's a gift. Um, you trust in what God has given. If you're out in the water and you've got no life preserver, are you going like this? And will that save you? No. Because there's no trust until there's an object to trust. Um, and so God gives us the gospel with no conditions, saying, here you go. This is what makes the difference between the law and the gospel. So what do we find? According to the law, all are under a curse. If you kept it, you could have life, but it's worse than that. If you don't keep it, for as many as of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them, but that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God, for his evidence the just shall live by faith. The law tells us you have to keep my commandments perfectly to be saved. And if you don't, and if you break it at even just one point, you will have the curse of eternal death. They're all under a curse because of the law. When we get to the gospel, we find that Christ redeems us from the curse. He buys us back. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. He's become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus says, well, someone has to die for this. And Jesus says, I'll do it. I'll take their death so that they don't have to. 
And that is how he gives us life, and he gives it to us freely. He takes that away from us. So now the law has no uh, claim upon us, because he has already fulfilled it for us. We find that, review, the law accuses, it always shows us our sins, it shows us the curse, it shows us what we have failed. And... Review, the gospel provides, it shows us our Savior, the one who took the curse, the one who took it away, the one who gives us life without conditions, and says, it is yours, take it, just believe, trust in what I have done for you. The law, therefore, we've got long gospel in God's word, the law is preached, and it is the word unrepentant, those who are not sorry for their sins... God wants us to preach the law. Acts 3.19 Repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. What does God do? Let me go ahead and put the other one so you can see both. One is unrepentant and the other is over here is repentant. God didn't give us the law to keep it. He gave it to us so that we would confess our sins repentant and then we would what, have times of refreshing. When we see our sins, then we preach the gospel. And the gospel comes to those who are repentant. John 7, 37 to 38, Jesus says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So I mentioned last time, you know, if... Uh, if, if I have a can of tire sealant and uh, uh, you don't want it until I show you that you have popped tires and holes in your tires, and then you will want this thing. Well, in the very same way, you will not want the drink of the gospel until first you learn that you are thirsty. The law is designed to show us our thirst so that if anyone does thirst, realize they can't do it and confesses their sins, they will come to Jesus and drink. The gospel will be received. Psalm 32.5 I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. That's what the law worked. And then you forgave the iniquity of my sin. What happens is, is that the gospel comes and gives us forgiveness. The law has to show us these things so that we want to receive a Savior Isaiah 61.1 says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has, has appointed me to do what? To preach good news, the gospel, not to the rich, but to the poor, those who have seen their law. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, brokenhearted by the law, so that it was healed by the gospel, to proclaim liberty to the captives. The law showed me I was captive, but the gospel set me free from my sins. The opening of the prison to those who are bound. The law showed me that I had original sin and I was bound. Now I've been set free as a prisoner. The gospel is always the answer to the law. Um, so when we get back to, uh, I know, Eric says, hey, so what about this? How, if the law shows us things, can we do it? Well, not at all without Christ. And with Christ? Well, we still have a sinful nature, so it makes it quite difficult. There are some things we can do, but we never trust in what we do. 
We always trust in Christ. Um, the back of that last page uh, has a devotion similar to last time and included uh, uh, one of our hymns. The hymns teach the faith so well. It happens to be the one we're using. Uh, Psalm 51 is very good in showing us repentance and unrepentance. And then the scripture readings, particularly John 3, which uh, uh, teaches us about the fall into sin. Any questions? All right, let's say a prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your uh, gift of law and gospel. We ask, dear Lord, uh, that when the law... Uh, is is shown to us that we would be repentant, confessing our sins, so that uh, with the delivery of the gospel we would trust in Jesus our Savior, for it is there that we have the confidence of life and the hope uh, of heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.